said, well, why don't you become CEO? And I mean, it just came out of nowhere. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? In retrospect, I did not in any way understand how publicly exposed I would be in taking the job. Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. In this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Cressida Pollock. Now, Cressida was brought up on an organic farm, went to study at Cambridge University, then studied the law, uh, joined McKinsey's, then went to the English National Opera, where she is credited with turning around the organisation. And from there, she's moved on to be the co-director of Quadrature Climate Foundation. It's a foundation based in the UK that gives grants to companies that are combating climate change. Cressida, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Let's start with your early years. I had quite an interesting contrast in my childhood because on the one hand, I grew up on an organic farm. Uh, it, wasn't, it was just a farm. Uh, now I would describe it as organic um, and was expected to do a great deal of chores um, and uh, help out. And, you know, you just... You know, any anyone who's ever lived on a farm knows that it's it's really a whole family job, right? And everyone's engaged in it, and it never stops. <laughs> and everyone's time off is always your busiest time. So all of my childhood memories of Christmas Day involve starting at seven a.m. to defrost water troughs. And for years, I always said, "Oh, I hate Christmas. It's so cold and wet." Um, because of that memory, I'm sure if my parents were listening, they would dispute my recollection of my chore-filled childhood. But I mean, it sort of teaches you a lot of different skills very quickly. And, you know, my, I don't remember a time I wasn't expected to go outside and be with my mother, say, but expected to help. I started though by saying there's a contrast and I think it's just worth noting. So my mother's actually the farmer and she herself has an incredibly unexpected career. She read languages at a North American University. She'd grown up in the suburbs of New York City and uh, became a barrister and then worked for Citizens Advice Bureau and then decided she wanted to be a farmer. And you can tell that there was absolutely no rural part of her previous life. And she taught herself to farm and she's run a farm now for 45 years and is still doing it at, uh, I'll reveal her age at almost 79 years old. So. That's a, that's a quite inspiring both career and work ethic. But the contrast is, as I said, so my mother was someone who I missed out, worked as a translator for Thames and Hudson and been a barrister. And my father was also a barrister and a commercial barrister and a kind of very, um, quite a high profile commercial barrister. So it's a really interesting contrast to grow up with this very, uh, very academic, uh, sort of very driven parents in different careers, but also to grow up with a strong sort of farming and rural community presence and a strong participation on the farm. So when you were young, did you have any feel for what you might like to do when you, you left school and university? 
My goodness, not at all. <laughs> um, I certainly, every Christmas day, swore I wasn't going to be a farmer. Um, but because of that defrosting of water troughs. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I always thought I want, I always thought I think I'd practice law because that was sort of the thing my parents had in common. My parents used to discuss what was going on in my father's cases over the dinner table. I grew up being expected to listen and engage on that. But I think one of the great challenges can be that um, it's very hard when thinking about a career not to sort of fixate or, or to, you always start with often what your parents do or what those around you that you know do. So interestingly, I did at one point think I might be a vet um, because the animals bit, but I think that was more my mother's preference than mine. And, and ultimately, obviously, I did study law. And that was, I would say, driven by my an affinity for it that I felt because of, you know, hearing my parents dinner table conversations. And you went you went to Cambridge University where you did you didn't read law at Cambridge. I did a joint degree in classics and law. I mean, Cambridge doesn't really issue joint degrees, but I did uh, two years of classics and two years of law. So part one and part two of Tripos. It's an interesting decision to have decided to switch to law midway through. I really loved classics. I think I wanted something a little bit more pragmatic and sort of applicable. Um, but I then tended to approach law, I would say, in quite a more intellectualized than pragmatic manner, having done the classics first. So it's quite an interesting contrast. But then having studied law, you, mm. you didn't go into law. Why was that? A couple of reasons. Uh, I had some very long conversations with my father about it. And there are two key reasons. So I finished my law degree. I actually went to bar school. I took and sat my bar exams. That went well. Um, and I then obviously had to look for pupillage and decide which area of the law I was going to do in pupillage. And brutally, the legal profession is in serious trouble from a barrister's perspective um, for everywhere I would say, well, the vast majority of practice outside of the commercial and chancery areas. Um, anything which relies on legal aid and government funding has been significantly, uh, I would say, diminished and become an incredibly hard road to practice um, due to reforms. And, my father sort of and I had quite a blunt conversation about what that was going to look like and what was happening in the profession. Then obviously a natural thing to do was to look at commercial practice. And I, I flunked out. Everyone I went to meet and talked to about it said, oh, you're Gordon Pollock's daughter. Are you as clever as your father? And I consistently said, I mean, I didn't heard you answer that question. I consistently said, I don't know, but I'm definitely more charming. <laughs> <laughs> but it really put me off and I think that is uh for anyone who chooses to look at going into a parent's profession particularly if that parent has been quite uh uh sort of I guess dominant in that profession and it's a small enough profession that people will know you 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 kind of either you get driven by saying I want to be competitive and be better than said parent or you say you know what, I don't want to spend my life trying to walk in someone else's shoes. And I chose the latter part. And so tell us what you did then. I actually got really interested in economics. So I had spent, while I did my law degree, I got more and more fascinated by sort of economics and particularly economic development. And actually, this sounds very geeky. And I'm afraid it's true, but I'm going to confess it, even though it's so geeky. I got really interested in legal structures to enable financial markets develop to support economic development. 
you know, everything from structures like covered bonds through to, you know, at that point, a lot of new stock exchanges were getting set up, which were deeply volatile. And the interesting question that sort of I saw was how are you encouraging financial flows into this area? And what was the role of the legal structure? So I was still studying law at this time in encouraging that. And I concluded that this sort of brought together all of these different things I was interested in. I had this entire plan at that point that I was going to go become expert in, you know, how do you both bring about development through law and regulation to encourage financial flows. I warned you this was quite, quite geeky. And it was just sort of a series of bits of reading that I'd done that got me interested in this. And so I had this amazing plan. I went and interned at an emerging markets investment fund and then called Lloyd George Management. And then I actually went to the FSA on their graduate scheme. And the FSA was, is a really, at the time was, you know, the big global regulator, well, the big regulator that globally was respected. It was sort of this glamorous thing. Well, not, I don't think anyone says regulation is glamorous, but it was from a regulation perspective, sort of the, the place to be. And I went and I basically, you know, it, it's a very pragmatic place. It's not a place that's interested in that question I was looking for, which was, how do you, how do you do, um, how do you create financial flows? How do you support development through these kinds of regulation? And it was an interesting time to be there, right? It was pre-2008, things were booming, hedge funds were listing, you know, all of this different sort of alternative assets were coming to market, no one really knew how to regulate them. So it was very interesting. But my intention at least had been to go to the FSA and then go do a master's at LSE in financial regulation. Things intervened. So bluntly, I got offered a job by the hedge fund, well, the investment fund I'd interned at in this previous summer. And I found eventually the FSA just not challenging me enough. And I accepted the job at the hedge fund, well, the investment fund, I should say. And at that point, I guess I, I chose not to pursue a career in law and not to pursue this plan of financial regulation. And tell us all what it's like to work in a hedge fund. I'm sure that there are lots of people yeah. out there think you make Explain loads of like. money and exciting and buying companies. So how did you find it? <laughs> well, I'm being a bit naughty, so I'm going to be very precise here. It's actually an investment fund because although it's an alternative asset at the time because it was emerging markets, that's no longer really so true. Um, and I usually use hedge fund as a shorthand, but it did not long short docs. But um, the bit which I'm sure you must know my, my story, which, which is probably going to shock your listeners, is it's, it's worth noting that I then went to the investment fund. The investment fund blew up the day I started in a full, huge falling out between senior leadership and the chairman. And the senior leadership left. I went with them to actually start a new fund, which was not an usual start to one's career in finance, particularly given that I didn't actually know anything about finance at the time. And I, I freely admit that. I had been planning to quietly be the junior analyst on the team, learn from everyone else and you know, spend six months building my knowledge. And suddenly I was the only person everyone was reliant on. I had to do all the financial analysis. And I was sitting there saying, you know, reading Investopedia to understand what a discounted cash flow was. Um, so I learned that quite quickly. The fund I was part of then supporting the start of is Somerset Capital Management, which is now best known for being Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, fund. So I've known Jacob and the other senior leadership for a very long time. And they have a very distinct investment strategy, that leadership. They're very much value investors, long-term holders, and they run a, a sort of a small selection portfolio of stocks, and they take careful decisions about it and are consistent. 
So it was a particular, when everyone thinks about hedge funds and the idea of trading and, you know, going in and out of stocks or spotting kind of, you know, spiking prices or shorting them down, that's not the style of investing it was. It is fun enough, I would say, a lot like being a barrister <laughs> in some ways and similar to a management consultant, which I did later on, which is ultimately you research lots of different things. You try and work out how to identify opportunities and you learn about completely different industries. I mean, I covered for a while every sector in every emerging market, which was really interesting. But then you apply in, in a law case, in a legal context, a legal framework, in an investment context, an investment framework, and in a management consultant context, a management consultant framework to the things that you research. So in the end, it's, it's a lot of research and it's a lot of, sort of analysis and it's sort of building a model, but everything ultimately does come down to an instinct and some gut. Did you enjoy that? I did. I really loved covering all the sectors and all the emerging markets. I loved sort of the breadth that I got to learn and the understanding that I gained, but I did not like investing. And what I mean by that is that you could do fabulous work. You could say, I really understood how the stock is moving. Something such is happening. Like this is a three year hold. I completely get this. And then something macroeconomic would happen and the Korean one would blow up and your entire investment would go down by 10% and everyone would say, what have you done wrong? And it, I just found that frustrating. And it also ultimately, it just wasn't for me. I didn't like the game enough. You have to like the investing game. I didn't. I loved the understanding game. I loved getting to understand companies and how they worked and what made them change and what were their decisions and what that looked like. But I didn't then like translating that into effectively betting on whether something goes up and down. I'm basically not a gambler. And so was that the reason you did go into management consulting? Yeah, well, it's the reason I know it's the reason I went to an MBA. So I chose to then leave and go to do my MBA with the potential to come back if I wanted, but to work out what that was. And during my MBA, it just became increasingly clear to me that I liked I liked actually understanding how a company runs. And actually what I really learned during the MBA, and it's sort of coming out, I think, in this decision, is I like understanding how systems work. I would never have put that into words when I talked to you about my, <laughs> my identification of this corner between regulation, financial flows, and economic development. But ultimately, this is all about how do you make a system work more effectively? And you know, when I talk about what I liked about investing, it was understanding what was making things work. Um, and then during my MBA, that just became more and more apparent. And MIT obviously has a long history in system dynamics and system systems thinking. And that just was, uh, suddenly I had a language to describe what I found so interesting. And ultimately, uh, I coming out of that, management consultancy offered me the best opportunity to develop those skills, but also to, to apply some of that system thinking to a whole range of different problems and see what it looked like. So you joined McKinsey? I joined McKinsey, though I first spent six months as a technical advisor to the Minister of Health in Zambia. So let's talk about unexpected decisions. So there I am, I've got my job at McKinsey and I'm leaving my MBA and everyone's like, you know, eager from their MBAs, they're starting their next bit of the career ladder, how Who's going to make partner fastest? All of these things are going on. And I had got really, in, as I said, really interested in system dynamics. I'd done a lot of work on global health, which 
is uh, has a wonderful professor actually at MIT, Anjali Sastry, and she ran something called Global Health Lab, which was support to support and study of particular provision of global health in particular by organizations around the world. And one of the things that's really clear, particularly in health, is you have all of these doctors who go and spend bits of their career, whether they're trained in the US or Europe or wherever it might be, and then decide to go and spend one, two, five years working in these different countries. But on the business side, what happens is you go and spend two weeks doing some short project and say, oh, look, I got experience of working in this area. I basically decided I wanted to kind of do something like a doctor. I was going to spend six months actually saying, how can I go and help one of these organizations and apply what I'm learning? I, I didn't mention it before, but actually when I finished university, I spent six months as a legal researcher for Shelter. And it was a very similar decision, which was, I've just been in this ivory tower learning all of these things. Actually, I want to go and spend six months applying them and understand what this actually looks like. And the answer is usually, by the way, that there's a huge chasm and everything you intellectually know is pretty impractical. And similarly to Shelter after university, post my MBA, I decided to go and spend, if I could, six months supporting an organization. I wrote to, I think, six different organizations and said, look, I will, you know, volunteer my time to come and support any particular problem you have. Um, and they were all organizations who had already had a relationship with MIT. And I ultimately chose to go to an organization in Zambia. And that organization asked me to split my time between being uh, an advisor to the Minister of Health uh, and the Permanent Secretary in the ministry and doing work for them. And so I found myself unexpectedly in an office in the Zambian Ministry of Health doing work for them. It was a very interesting experience. And so you did that for six months, and I'm sure you got a lot from it. I did get a lot from it. I think I, I mean, in, in, in truth, I think I got a lot from it. I'm not sure the Zambian ministry got that much from me, despite my best attempts, because frankly, it's still, you know, it's, it's part of the entire cycle, right, of turning up and supporting a country and then disappearing off again. So I enjoyed it a great deal, and they very kindly asked me to stay, and then I, I had a tough decision to make at the time. But then I returned, you know, I returned to McKinsey, where I did actually still quite a lot of healthcare and global development work where possible. And so you were a consultant, and like um, all consultants, there came a point when I suspect you said, I'd actually like to go and run something now. It's a little bit like that. I think um, I always think the best way to describe consult management consulting, and any sort of consulting in many ways, is I always called it being a business therapist. And people always hate on management consultants by saying, you know, that whole joke is they say, give me your watch and I'll tell you the time, right? And there is a truth to it, but it's a little bit like, it's a bit like therapy, right? It's, it's yes, very frequently, you, you don't go in, particularly with a team where you've got some, in my case, I think 30-year-old and some 23-year-old, and you'll go in being very smart and bright and say, hey, we're going to rewrite a strategy for some significant organization and company. But some of it is running that process. And for anyone who's ever done any therapy, that is a, um, it's similar. Um, it's a process that you need to run. You don't necessarily not know the answer. You just want to run a process to understand it. So it offers some really interesting opportunities. But even with McKinsey, I got increasingly interested in the system change and transformation and indeed turnaround work. It comes back to this whole, I mean, it's about as close as you can get as a consultant to actually running something, right? 
So I started doing some work with the recovery and turnaround practice, um, which is still very strong and ongoing. Um, but but uh, I did quite a bit of organizational transformation work, um, particularly in the public sector. And that sort of became what I was clearly driving my career towards at McKinsey. But, you know, I didn't necessarily, I don't think even, I was barely two years into McKinsey. So I don't think I'd quite got to the point of saying, now I need to go run something. Um, I started thinking about whether I wanted to go be somewhere more sort of, yes, where you end up having more P&L, you know, profit and loss responsibility. But uh, actually, the ENO move was really quite, quite unexpected. So, so tell us about it, because at this point in your career, you, you, you've studied law, you've gone into finance, you've spent time in a, in a, in government um, uh, abroad, uh, helping with health. You've then uh, become a consultant, and now all of a sudden, you're about to become the CEO of the um, English Actually, National Opera. So how so did that happen? How on earth? You know what? After it happened, I often got called up by people who wanted to move into the arts from consulting. And I'd always have coffee with them and say, I have absolutely no idea how to do it. I mean, in my particular journey was a very strange combination of circumstances, which resulted in uh, me stepping in as CEO of English National Opera. So... What originally had happened is um, McKinsey was doing a pro bono project for ENO, and I saw that it was happening and was very interested. And I've always been, I'm, I'm a big audience member of the performing arts, let me put it like that. I never performed, I produced a few things as a student, but minimally, and uh, I never thought I'd work in the arts, but I'm a big fan of it. And I'd already started to try and be engaged in terms of, uh, what I could put as an advisor or a board member for small organizations and was looking at that. And I saw this project and thought, my goodness, this is amazing. You know, I love opera, you know, I have, you know, like how, um, you know, this, this is a great opportunity to get more understanding of a performing arts organization. And it was really interesting. And um, I was convinced everyone else would obviously want to be involved in it, but it turned out that not everyone was as fan, big a fan of opera as I was. I was the manager on the project and I got deeply involved with ENO. And ENO was in a state of trouble, to put it mildly. Um, a much, quite a significant state of trouble with divisions among the leadership team, divisions among the board, you know, sig facing significant financial hardship with the cut of the Arts Council grant, which wasn't really being grasped as a challenge and um you know enter a McKinsey team which is always actually quite a tough thing for an organization to have anyway because they can be you come and you ask a lot of questions and you generate quite a lot of work you know that's part of the process but um it was it was challenging sort of to enter that but over the course of this sort of eight week project we you know built relationships I built relationships across the leadership team across the board um, and got really very uh, passionate about ENO. But it's still a bit like saying, I love my bank card, so I'm going to go run Monzo, right? <laughs> you, I do appreciate that was a bit sort of the, the distinction of saying, I really love, you know, this challenger bank, so obviously I could go run it. Anyway, um, after the project finished, I kept doing some work purely pro bono, so not even through McKinsey, just to support the board as they went through that autumn and just 
into the winter. And I actually had a conversation again with uh, Mackenzie to say, and with, with Ian O to say, I would be willing to take a secondment to be a director of the strategy and transformation to help Ian deal with its financial challenge, which was obviously, you know, losing 30% of its government support, which is 15% of revenue and a, a huge challenge. So McKinsey agreed to it and they'll do a thing where they agreed at the time to pay, I think, some percentage of my salary to top up whatever e could afford for me. And I agreed to do it. But then the chair resigned and the CEO resigned and you know got put into special measures and was all over the papers if you remember the beginning of 2015 and i i was doing a, a turnaround project in an incredibly different space to opera at that time quite quite intense and eventually sort of came to london on a friday afternoon and had a coffee with the then acting chair still the current chair and in one of i think the most i mean Great, great decision, also completely inexplicable. And I've never understood why on earth this decision got made. About four minutes into the coffee, you know, I say, well, Harry, what are you going to do? I obviously, we'll come and be, we'll still, you know, honor this secondment, but it really depends on what an incoming CEO wants. When do you think you're going to have one? You know, these are the really urgent problems you've got. How are you going to solve it? And he said, well, why don't you become CEO? And I mean, it just came out of nowhere. And I was like, uh, sure. <laughs> then, then I went, I remember I went to the, I excused myself and went to the ladies and sat in the ladies going, there will be no bad language on your podcast, but one can imagine that I sat there saying, oh my goodness, in a version of that, what am I doing? And then obviously I had a whole process where I then had to decide what, would I actually do it? And then obviously the board had to approve it and the arts council had to approve it. So I went through a whole interview process. You know, it was, a, it was a tough decision on both sides, right? I was 32 years old. I'd run, the biggest team I'd ever run was two, no, three people uh, as an engagement at McKinsey. I had uh, never worked in the arts. I'd never run anything like, and I'd never run a company. I'd you know, not really worked in a normal company outside of kind of finance, you know, or consulting. And uh, ENO is a national treasure, which was in serious trouble. So there's two questions, like one, why on earth would you ask me? And two, as someone put, I think the best piece of advice I got was, do you actually think the ENO can be saved? Because if you don't, you know, and you're just being an honorable captain going down with a ship and saying, well, someone needs to stand there honorably, just don't do it. That was an advice from a friend. But if you can think it could be saved, you know, by all means. And my answer was, well, it might not look like a ship, but I definitely know we can create something that floats. And so I said, I'll go for the job. And then on my interview process, I mean, I think that's been long enough that I can share. The Arts Council was pretty skeptical. They'd obviously met me because we'd worked with them as the McKinsey team, but they were, you know, what on earth are you thinking this is going to happen? And two things, I mean, one, as I said to them in the interview, and it's the moment I know they decided they were okay with it, which was at, in no normal circumstance should ENO have employed me as the CEO. They needed someone with arts experience, ideally opera experience, performing arts experience. Um, they need someone who'd run something before. But the challenge is there's no one really who runs turnaround in the arts in the same way. 
And anyone who was sort of skilled and available wasn't touching ENO because it was seen as a poison chalice. And so in some ways, my experience of consulting and finance and law, but also my experience of doing these transformations and turnaround at McKinsey meant I had seen it done and I got how you did it, which was pretty unique in the people they had available at the time to, as other candidates. And so, as I said to them, you know, you have a choice. If this is a normal circumstance, there's no way I'm a candidate or should, we should be having this conversation. But if you actually need someone who'll show up and do this, then um, yeah, I can do it. And much later, when I was leaving. Three person, years later. Yeah, three years later. The person from the Arts Council who'd made that decision, who I won't name nameless, but is since retired, so I think I can share the story, confessed to me that she had always thought that there was no way I would, <laughs> I would make it. She thought, she thought I was very lovely and very smart, and that I would come in and I'd write the required strategy that ENO needed, and I'd write the plan, but that I would they would then have to find someone who had the hide of a rhinoceros to deliver the plan. And I would, you know, not manage to do that and after six months leave. And uh, then she turned around to me and said, unbelievably, it turned out you had the hide of a rhinoceros. <laughs> and, and you did. I mean, it wasn't easy. Lots of stories of um, yeah. uh, members of the cast shouting at you and people feeling really upset about the yeah. measures that you needed to take to make the organisation survive. But you, you did make it survive. I mean, it's a great turnaround story in the art. So you, you must feel incredibly proud of, of what you did there. I'm immensely proud. I'm also incredibly proud of the team. I, and I don't just, it's always very nice to always say, oh, I'm so proud of the team, but actually people, and it's not just the senior team, people took a lot of pain to allow ENA to survive. And it was really challenging and it wasn't, no turnaround it's pretty it's also I think though particularly challenging in an organization which hadn't really heard the truth from leadership about how bad things were financially and as one and two an organization where financial outcomes aren't what you're there for right you're there for artistic outcomes the vast majority of people who worked in ENO and therefore suddenly kind of the intrusion of saying you might be doing an incredible job the best job anywhere in what you do but it's totally irrelevant to whether or not your job is safe is challenging and it's challenging to deliver that i think you know in retrospect i did not in any way understand how publicly exposed i would be in taking the job i talked about you know my very clear decision making my, my, my decision making was very clearly about is there a plan here that i think i can lead and find can we save the eno I didn't really think through the, um, the personal impact I would need to endure. And frankly, it wasn't unreasonable. The level of media attention that I got on both social media and the media was, it was different. And it was a combination, I think, of me being young, not from the arts and from and, and you've talked about sexism in the workplace, so this feels like a good point to maybe <laughs> yeah. pick that up. But what advice would you give to women, given the um, the things that have happened to you? I mean, the first thing is the world has changed a lot already. Even in my lifetime of a career, it's significantly different. I mean, things I saw happen from a purely sexism, classic sexism perspective, 
from all those cases we now know in finance just wouldn't happen now. Not, I want to emphasize <laughs> human challenges at Somerset Capital Management, but just things have shifted there. Second, things have also shifted in the public sphere in lots of good ways. But the biggest challenge I see is social media. You know, there's a reason no women want to be MPs, right? Or public figures. Like the it's pretty bad, whoever you are. You read stuff that gets written about women, it's horrifying. And I think um, we talk a lot about kind of how one can say it, I guess, face-to-face -face sexism in the workplace, is that the right way to call it? Or or discrimination, not just sexism. But we often and I mean that's I mean, it's very challenging for me to come out and say a lot of things directed at me on social media were purely driven by sexism. They were also driven by sorrow and pain, anger at whoever was in my position. But some of the ways it was able to be, I, I could navigate it in some of the ways it was accepted versus not accepted. Or I, how do I say it? Some of the ways I would say it was allowed to continue or, or seen as, just deal with it. I think came far enough, not just, it wasn't so much from sexism, but actually just, I was just young. And you know, now I would know much better how to deal with lots of it. But, but I do think um, workplaces are much better, but you know, that people can discriminate against you for many different reasons. They can, you know, in my particular part, I very rarely get seriously discriminated against. You know, I'm lucky, I'm, I'm white, I'm privileged. I went to Cambridge. <laughs> Like I have huge advantages there, but you know, you get some of it is you know gender. Sometimes my accent causes unkind statements or, or prejudgment. So there's always something you're going to have to navigate in that way. But the world is in a much better place for being able to talk about it and being able to address it and getting to acknowledge certain things. Um, but on media, you know, you're damn, the problem with media and it's particularly on social media that sometimes when it goes in the papers, in this case or not. And I would love to read the book on how to manage social media in a public position. I have, I wish I had a solution and I don't, except endure. Um, I sit there and I think, gosh, you know, should I have gone on Twitter and started responding? But that is, <laughs> that is a, that is a rabbit warren of, of problems, right? Do you, you know, get more, combative with news you call up news agents editors and say you know how dare you i'm going to cause lots of problems if you don't sometimes if you have that relationships you can but i certainly couldn't um i i actually don't know how you as any leader in that position you navigate some of the vitriol that comes out on social media without just ignoring it we've said that you, you've done three years and a brilliant job at the uh you know I know what comes next. I think that again, it's a total change in, in many step, ways. Right? I, yeah. I know. But so, and there's two ways that I want to, to, to get into that with you. The first is I want to talk about your walk after um, mm -hmm. you left the year now. And then I want to, um, to learn from you what took you into the role that you've got now. Uh, around climate and funding, etc. So um, you, you've you've left uh, Ian Aid and a great job, and you, you're now deciding to go on a walk across the country. <laughs> yeah, I did several things. Someone said to me after, I guess, uh, when I came back to London at a women's event, and I met these two women who said, "Wow, you really went very hippie, didn't you?" 
that's maybe the right way to describe my post ENO moment. So look, ENO was this incredible journey, and it was an incredible journey in, in sort of a uh, Odyssey style manner. It had its amazing moments and it had its uh, its sort of Scylla and Crypdis moments of passing between the clashing rocks, right? It was it, it had its ups and its downs. So I finished, you know, we handed it over, we got into a great space of handing it over. I was very happy, you know, things were running well. And I, I left and uh, I decided I'd take the summer off. I was having all different conversations about different jobs and I, I just couldn't decide what was next. And it was a very, it was a very interesting period because the things I was being called up about, or the things I was looking at were not similar. They were everything from another arts organization to turn around to a government job to um, a startup, right? It was taking this range of skills that you developed and people sort of see all the different ways you can apply it. And uh, so I really said, actually, I need some time out. And I took the summer off. And uh, I've always wanted to do more walking. I love walking, and but I've always worked a lot. And also what that combines with, I think, is uh, we all love to imagine that we're, we can be the adventurer, right? That we can go off with our backpack and wild camp and hike a mountain and, you know, we'll be great at it. And uh, I hadn't done that much of it. Actually, my parents weren't that into walking, mainly because we were outside on the farm all the time anyway. I thought, you know, this is going to be my moment. And I remember my father, but my parents were supportive and bemused, is how I'd put it, as he bless him, uh, I'd been playing golf with him in Scotland and uh, he dropped me off at a Glasgow train station, staggering under the weight of this backpack. Well, I have to admit some slight anxiety about me solo doing the coast to coast without, to be fair, a huge amount of camping or hiking experience. Um, but you know, it seemed fine. So I set off and I did it in reverse direction because the west coast train lines were down so I had to go over to the east coast to start which is the great advantage by the way of just doing it on your own and but I um I set off and I really just needed to get I think out of London out of my head and just walk through a lot of the drama of the previous three years I think one of we talked a bit about the sort of media presence and the public perception and the public profile and one of the things I was just totally unprepared for is one gets pathologized. I think that's the best way to describe it. Who I was perceived as and necessarily by many in the sector and particularly given the drama surrounding, you know, was for no relation to who I was. And learning how to deal with that with, I hope it's okay to say in a podcast, without becoming an asshole was quite important to me because you can deal with it by just growing a really thick skin and saying, I don't care. And sort of going in and being unconcerned. And I didn't want to develop that as my reflex. I wanted to actually work out how to deal with it and to let it go without becoming an asshole. And there's a reason I think a lot of CEOs can be described as assholes. Sorry, <laughs> I'm saying it lots now. Because they, you know, you have a job as well where you, not just the media profile, but you make decisions about people's working lives and you can't do that from a sentimental case, right? And you're also always responsible for those decisions, even where well, you're accountable for those decisions, however much it might not really be the responsibility, even if the problems happened five years earlier, right? So that was, I think, what I used the walk for. Um, but it was also just 
also a little bit inspired by a professor called um, Bill Isaacs, who is at MIT and um, wrote a great book called Dialogue, which is weird, but wonderful and brilliant. And he, I'd once gone to a lecture by, with him and he had said, you know, every year as a leader, you should basically go out and, and he does it, he goes into Death Valley, I think for four or five days on his own, which is a bit more extreme. And I remember, you know, he says, you've got to go build that resilience back up. And I remember saying to him, well, what happens if you go out on your own and you actually just have a breakdown? He's like, well, then you're not resilient enough. You know, that's, that's your answer. So I guess this was my small imitation, not risking Death Valley of hiking across the UK, across England. Was it that walk that um, convinced you that you wanted to do something around climate change next? It was the beginning of it. I always love the idea that you have a Damascene moment, that there's suddenly this, aha, I saw my vision. And we love to tell those stories. And obviously now it's, 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 per, you know, it's true, like that, that six months off, spending a lot more time outside, spending that time in nature made me go. And it is. I started the question on that walk of why are there so many fewer birds? And I just so, hadn't really noticed. I mean, I grew up on a farm. I still go to the farm regularly, but I just hadn't been outside long enough to say, huh, I'm not seeing, you know, flocks of starlings in the way I used to. I'm not, you know, I, I stumbled across a dead red kite and, you know, it looked like it had been poisoned and it wouldn't have been deliberately poisoned, but that happens. And, you know, I just started saying, huh, what, what's happening? Like, what? let me engage with this more again. And, um, I started talking to my friend, and obviously in preparing for the walk, I spent lots of time with my friends who do spend time outside, who almost all work in uh, nature conservation or climate. So they also started talking to me about this. And then um, I uh, went and got super hippie after the walk and uh, went and did a yoga teacher training course in Guatemala, of all places, which was just where I found on the map. And then I went and sat on a beach, uh, and uh, thought about what I wanted to do next. And I always, I remember coming back from it all so four months or three months later and saying, I know everyone expects me to have had some amazing revelation where I conceived my new company or whatever it would be on a beach. None of that happened. I had no revelations, but the truth is I had. And I'd basically opened Pandora's box. And that's what climate's like. You open Pandora's box and you understand that everything we value in our civilization, everything that's happening, is at huge risk because of the changes that may be happening. And I would say are, but you know, I like to be optimistic, happening on our climate. And I'm always fascinated by people who want to say, oh, it's not human caused. I mean, I pray to God it is human caused because if it's human caused, we can adjust it. If we think that we've just got a world heating to six by six degrees, civilization as we know it is over human life, in any large scale on this planet is over. So let's hope it's human caused and we can actually manage it. But uh, once you've kind of opened that box, once you realize what's going on, you can't really work on anything else. And it wasn't like I hadn't been engaged before, you know, MIT had just started its sustainability certificate the year after I was there. I, I knew a lot of that team. Obviously John Sturman does a huge amount of work in climate on the system dynamics modeling. Um, lots of my friends have worked on it. I, I was very engaged, but I kind of felt it was being dealt with, right? It was, it was happening. But once you open that Pandora's box and you realize that it's, it is being dealt with, but not fast enough and other issues are happening and we've got significant rising emissions um, as uh, the emerging economies develop, which is totally understandable, but that's not being matched in any way by the cuts in developed economies. And you know, once you realize all, all of these, these, these terrifying challenges we're facing, 
it's very hard to then say, yep, I'm now going to go run another arts company, however much I love it. So I took the choice that I would try and work in climate. But I also admit, <laughs> no experience in climate. And I didn't quite know how to do that. And I was very fortunate to be introduced to Jeremy Oppenheim, who had founded the sustainability practice at McKinsey. And I hadn't worked with at McKinsey, though, of course, I knew of him and had, I think, sometimes tried to work with him, but didn't ever get a project. And um, I was introduced to Jeremy and I went and had this conversation with him in uh, February 2019 and said pretty much what I've just described to you. And I said, look, I have the law background and training. I have finance. I have some work in government. I have this understanding and love of system work. I have been a management consultant. I've actually run a company, which is very different, right? It teaches you what it really looks like to make change in a company and how hard it is as a CEO to make, say, change on a sustainability basis when you've got to worry about people's jobs and them paying their mortgages, et cetera. And I said to Jeremy, so what do you think? You know, do you think that's I could be useful in climate work. And Jeremy, which I will forever be grateful to him, said, well, come and work with me at Systemic for a bit and with the team. And just let's do it on a you know, day rate basis and see, see what you find, what interests you, and whether you can find your space. And so I started working in climate. And that's how it happened. And so tell us about your current role as co-director yeah. of uh, Quadratio Climate Foundation. About three months into working with Systemic, um, Jeremy had said to me, I've got, I've met these two, these two people who, these two guys who have uh, co-CEOs of a quant fund, which is indeed the niche of the niche of the niche of finance world, right? It's algorithmic trading. It was algorithmically driven trading across uh, usually a whole range of stocks or whole, whole sector, I mean, a whole universe, in fact, in order to um, generate returns. And he said, you know, they, they founded this fund and they want to start a foundation. Um, and they decided that the foundation should focus on climate, but they're struggling to work out how to get it up and running. Like it's outside their area of experience. They don't know who they should hire. And they've met some fantastic people, but everyone tends to come at it from a, if I've worked in finance, it's all, of, if I work in climate on finance, it's all about finance. If I work on land use, it's all about land use or forest protection. If it's energy, it's all about the energy transition, right? It's, and they sort of wanted to go through a process of kind of dispassionately assessing where their money could best be spent in terms of funding, philanthropic funding for supporting, uh, supporting the fight on climate. And, um, he said, you know, I really want, Jeremy said to me, I really want to introduce you because they finally asked me to put a team together who can spend six months advising them to get the foundation up and running, to take them through sort of an initial strategy and to take them a bit on a learning journey. And he said, I want to introduce you to them. So he introduced me and various other people to them. And uh, I afterwards called Jeremy and said, it was really wonderful to meet them, but this is absolutely not for me because I actually don't know anything. I don't really, not, I have, I don't really know that much on climate still. I'm still Googling all the acronyms under the table and I need they clearly need someone who knows the sector to take them through it. And he said, well, this is very disappointing because they told me they want you to come and lead this team. And so I said, we had an impasse. And he said, look, come and talk to them. So I went and talked to Greg and Snow again. And I, I said to them what I said just now, you know, I don't know the space well enough. And they, I still remember Greg said the really helpful thing when she said, well, how well did you know opera? Which was an excellent point because the answer was not that well. And it's true. I'm lucky enough to have 
a skill to love coming into new sectors and to be able to ramp up in new areas. And there's several reasons I really enjoy and value it. Lots of people don't like it. Like they, they like to build expertise. I would say my expertise is almost being an outsider in a sector and being able to build those understandings and those relationships and to bring a new perspective because of that. So I agreed to take on a six month role. I did it. We got the foundation established. We got up and running. We built an initial strategy. Um, we got processes running. And then um, in the beginning of 2020, <laughs> Greg Hill said they wanted to sort of stop using the consultancy, have actually start building that team. And they asked myself um, and Brian Worthington to be the co-CEOs of the new foundation and to get it running. And I accepted and I, I joined the foundation full time. It's been an interesting journey. And actually, I don't think it's, it's probably not public in, in what you know, but I'm actually in the midst of beginning a handover to phase two, and I will leave the foundation at the end of April. Um, and it's been an interesting experience on several reasons. One is when we first started, the foundation was anticipated to disperse 50 to $100 million a year, which is significant in the climate space and as a private foundation. It's due to several circumstances, majority of which is an act choice by the two co-principals to allocate more funding to the foundation. The foundation is actually going to disperse a lot more than that. The goal is sort of three to $400 million a year, which makes it one of the largest climate foundations after Bezos globally and, and along with SIF. And we built an organizational structure, we built a governance structure, and we built a strategy which has been stretched as far as it can possibly go to a sort of 10 person team effectively dispersing $200 million a year in funding. But that's the limit of where we can go. And we've built that phase one, as I call it. And we recognized last summer that we need to do a bit of a reset to understand that this is not just let's do more. We actually need to rethink the organization structure, the leadership structure and the governance. And as part of that, uh, Brian departed in October and I've led the transition to prepare the foundation for phase two. And we're in the midst of recruiting a new CEO who will need to be, in my view, someone who's, I mean, bluntly, I don't, I don't want that public a role, which will be required to be the face of this larger foundation. So we're handing it over. And um, it will then, I hope, continue as a meteoric rise in terms of grant making in this sector. And do you know what you're going to do next, or are you going to go on a long walk and find it? You know what, I'm probably going to go on a long walk. I don't know. I'm really hoping this isn't a habit. So sort of three years, every three years or so, I like complete whether it's a turnaround or a startup or an entirely new sector, and then I take six months off and reassess. And I think I'm going to stay in the climate sector for sure. I mean, not least climate covers everything, right? So there is a lot of different things to still know and to do in that area which is another reason in some ways I definitely did not want the, C, the CEO role as it goes forward in that it's going to be further from the learning in some ways because it's so big as an organization. It will be so big as an organization. Um, so I'm going to stay in climate. I've got two or three projects I'm looking to deliver this year after I leave. And um, I have a slightly different personal life. I got married in October. I will take, uh, take some time for that as well. Looking back, what advice would you have given to your younger self leaving university based on all that you've learned? Yeah. The first thing as advice I do give people when I talk to them, there are more careers and jobs out there and ways to work than you have ever imagined. And 
you can you can explore that. I also think that's something that has changed. It's certainly changed from significant my parents' generation. It changed a bit by mine. It's changed even more with the generation leaving university now, which is simply that there is just, you know, there used to be professions and your careers. And now it's a portfolio. Like you have lots of different things that you can do. People are much more flexible. Um, things have changed in that way. And even when I left ENO, I remember saying to headhunters when I was looking at what I should do next, I said, well, I'm a deep generalist. And people kept saying, Cressa, you can't be a deep generalist. <laughs> you have to, you have to have sector specialty. We need people in leadership. Uh, about two years later, that's really shifted. And now people say, well, I get called up for jobs saying, well, we really want a deep generalist and someone who's proven they can work across different sectors. And I think that's a sign of how the world's changing. So for anyone leaving university, there's a whole set of different opportunities. The second thing and the most important is um, take all the opportunities to learn those unexpected things. Um, even at my MBA, I took a lot of weird classes. I actually had a goal in my second year to take lots of unexpected classes, nothing which was in sort of a particular track, you know, everything from operations for humanitarian relief, which was fascinating. And I'd never thought about how to do operations modeling to decide what you put on your planes as you send them in into the disaster zone. Um, and there's an entire science to it um, because it will inspire you in different ways. And I think it's very easy to get locked into this idea of I need to be on this career ladder and I need to do X, Y, and Z. And I've had the privilege of, I guess, what you can say in my career, I obviously haven't had to say, well, I need to do X to earn a certain amount of money or so forth. Although I've been very well paid throughout my career. So I, I take sort of, I've had that choice, but I haven't sat there saying, I want to provide for my family. Um, conveniently having not got married until 39. Um, but it's, you do have more flexibility than you think, and you can take more risks than you, you think. And the great joy of all of this is learning right, is developing skills, learning them, and finding out what you really enjoy doing. Um, but, and then perhaps my final comment is, even in that, don't always, you don't always have to buy into, I think, a bit of the Silicon Valley mantra that, you know, do what you love, because, you know, life is work. That's also not always true. <laughs> so set some boundaries as well, is I think important. That's great advice, Cressida. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your amazing journey. Congratulations on all you've achieved. And I'm sure everybody listening will wish you every success in whatever you choose to do in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely delightful. And I really appreciated uh, the chance to relive some of my decisions. <laughs> I always Thank say you. it's a bit of a random walk. That's, the, that's, that's certainly been my, my experience. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.